0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor.
1: So what have you got for us today, Teagan?
0: Well, I'll be looking at what's behind the decline in heart attack deaths over the past 40 years or so, and whether that overall trend downwards hides problems in certain groups. And as we're, we are already seeing health impacts of climate change, as I believe you will be mentioning too, Norman, I'm going to be interviewing one of the lead authors from the recent IPCC report, And you've got a bit of a blast from the past.
1: I have, yeah. Last uh, week in Maryland, uh, David Bennett Senior, the 57-year-old who received a genetically modified pig's heart, he died. It actually brought back memories for me of baby Faye in the mid-1980s. She was a newborn baby in California who had a fatal heart abnormality and was given a baboon heart transplant. Mm. She later died, 21 days later, amidst huge international headlines. I was actually the first person to get an interview with the controversial surgeon who did the operation, Leonard Bailey. I thought I'd rerun that interview from 1985, instructive, the first year of the health report. You know, listen to my accent as it was then. Now, Bailey made an explosive admission during that interview, which got worldwide coverage after I ran it. I'm not going to tell you what that admission was. You're going to have to listen.
0: And I won't tell you how old I
1: was in 1985. (laughs) That's right. Before you were born. I was born and Japanese encephalitis. It's causing a lot of concern in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. It's what's called an arbovirus infection spread by mosquitoes and has made an extraordinary jump of thousands of kilometers south. So what's going on? Well, to tell us, Associate Professor Greg Devine, who's an expert in arboviruses at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research in Brisbane. Welcome to the health report, Greg. Uh, Good afternoon. So this is a virus that, you know, occasionally comes into the Torres Strait, Common in Southeast Asia, literally thousands of kilometres. What's going on?
2: Uh, well, I think, um, as you say, it's it's uh, it's in Asia. It's a very common disease there. Um, causes eighty thousand um, symptomatic cases per year. Probably tens of millions potentially uh, of infections per year, because only a very few uh, number of those infections actually go on to be um, to cause symptomatic disease, which of course has kind of terrible consequences for human health. But so yes, it was here in the in the uh, middle of the nineteen nineties. Identified in the outer islands of the Torres Strait um, and then later on the Queensland mainland and Cape York. Um, and then there was a case in Northern Territory in 2021 as well. So there's been a very few cases, but we certainly know that the virus has been circulating in North Australia for quite a long time. And Japanese encephalitis has been on the radar um, for quite some time. And it has very similar uh, sort of ecologies to other endemic Australian viruses. There's something called Murray Valley encephalitis, which is extremely similar, um, and which is also associated with outbreaks in La Nina years. So Murray Valley encephalitis was um, here in 1974, and 2011, and here we've got another La Nina and a very similar, similar virus circulating.
1: So wet weather. Now, the natural life cycle is through migratory birds, mosquitoes, migra- migratory birds, back to migratory birds, and then it escapes.
2: Yes. The sequence tends to be, um, first of all, migratory birds, and then spilling over into the pig population. And the pig population is really important because the pig is an extremely good animal for amplifying the virus into kind of very, very high titers uh, in the pig body. Um, And that means that mosquitoes can then take the virus from the pig and then transfer it uh, onto humans. So it tends to be humans are the last in the spillover cycle to get it. And so they tend to be at the end of the season. And
1: I think that's uh, where we are now. So humans, horses, cattle, we're called dead ends because it's unlike malaria. We don't pass it back to mosquitoes. That's right. So humans are not going to transmit the virus and neither are horses, although both can have very serious uh,
2: disease as a result of infection, although rarely. Um, So it's pigs which are the really important thing here. And of course, Australia has an awful lot of feral pigs as well. And they're probably quite an important part of the picture uh, in this current outbreak. And the main symptoms? Uh, The main symptoms um, of Japanese encephalitis are that initially they have fever, aches and pains. Um, They're similar to a whole number of other viral outbreaks um, or viral diseases, but then they can be much more serious once it becomes uh, an encephalitis and the swelling of the brain. Um, Then you can have nervous uh, disorders, uh, disorientation. and When it gets very serious, um, that can lead to convulsions and um, and even, of course, tragically
1: uh, to death. Particularly in young kids and older people. Will yes. it become endemic in the way it's become endemic in Asia? Well,
2: I think it's here to stay. So I think um, now that it's been discovered uh, across huge areas of um, southern Australia, it probably means that it's been here for a while and we just haven't seen it. I suspect that our surveillance uh, operations have failed to some extent and that's probably something understandably to do with the fact that everybody's been focused on um, COVID for the last couple of years um, but I think it's certainly here to stay it, be, it would be I think the way to find out of course is to do a very intensive surveillance of uh, all the piggeries in Australia and also looking at the feral pig population as well but I think if we find that it continually turns up it's the case that the pigs in the piggeries and feral pigs have also converted to Japanese encephalitis, then I think we assume that it's here to stay. I mean, just because Moraine Valley encephalitis isn't picked up very often uh, doesn't mean that it's disappeared. It just means it's kind of hidden in the wildlife reservoir.
1: Can you immunise pigs? Uh, You can.
2: Uh, There there are pig vaccines, um, but they're not particularly useful necessarily. Uh, South Korea has a huge program of pig vaccination, which it's been doing for about 30 years. But the problem with that is that we tend to slaughter pigs very young. So um, by eight months old, most pigs um, are going to the abattoir. Um, so that means that the, the vaccination programme has only a very limited impact uh, on transmission. It might be a perfectly good way of protecting breeding size and boars, um, but it's not a, it doesn't
1: make a great deal of difference in terms of transmission. So the best thing is vaccinating the human population. But presumably only the human population is going to come in contact with the pigs or in rural areas.
2: Yes, well, I think that's why the surveillance of piggeries and feral pigs is so important, because it would give people an idea of what the distribution of the disease is. Um, the, the vector of Japanese encephalitis can fly tremendously, tremendous distances, so perhaps two kilometres a day. So if you're thinking about... This is the, the- Culex mosquito. That's correct, that's Culex and Neurostris, which is uh, a really good vector of a lot of different viruses. Um, but yeah, big dispersal distances. So um, it means that the, kind of, you know, the, uh, the, the potential catchment area in terms of risk of transmission to humans is probably a few kilometres uh, from a piggery.
1: You mentioned Murray Valley encephalitis. There's another really nasty arbovirus called West Nile. And yes. it caused a lot of problems and deaths in the United States. And I'm yes. told it has been detected further south in Australia. Um, an so,
2: uh, I'm I'm not aware that West that that, that, that the particular um, variant of West Nile virus that causes severe disease uh, in other parts of the world is here. We have our own form, a subtype called Kunjin, uh, which is occasionally very pathogenic in horses. But there's a, a perceived wisdom that says that because our variant of West Nile virus, which is called Kunjan, um, is, is widespread across the whole of Australia, that may be affording us some protection against West Nile virus, in that if West Nile virus was to come in, then it would have to compete with Kunjan virus um, for both its wildlife reservoir um, and also its, uh, in terms of its transmission pattern. So,
1: yes, yeah, perceived wisdom is, is that West Nile virus isn't a huge threat, but of course we do need to be on our toes. And then there's dengue, which is another story altogether. Greg, thank you very much indeed. Very instructive. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Associate Professor Greg Devine runs the Mosquito Control Laboratory at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. And did you notice he's both Scottish and pronounces encephalitis the right way, Tegan?
0: Well, I'm going to say it the wrong way. And What I got from that is public health emergency. It's really a big deal, but for individuals, Protecting yourself from Japanese encephalitis with the C virus also protects you from other mosquito-borne diseases, like things like Ross River and Murray Valley encephalitis
1: but you're going to talk about the climate change aspect of this.
0: Well, yeah. So the appearance of Japanese encephalitis virus in Australia has come at about the same time as the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. The report has looked at lots of aspects of climate change, but a key one was its effects on health. And the lead author of the chapter dealing with health was Professor Catherine Bowen from the University of Melbourne, who's here right now. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Tegan. So the past few years, it feels like the discourse about the health effects of climate change has been very much like we have to prepare for this future. But what we're really seeing is it's happening here now.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we we are already seeing the impacts of climate change on human health. So we're seeing these, <clears throat> you'll have to excuse me, I'm recovering from COVID <laughs> at the <Gosh>. moment. so <laughs> I've got a bit of a sore throat, but... um we're seeing these impacts what we call directly. So these might be from extreme weather events, whether these be floods or cyclones in Australia. And we obviously, you know, uh, the projections of these sorts of extreme weather events are for them to increase in their intensity and their frequency. So if we look at the direct impacts from floods, for example, these can both be death and illness from floods, very sadly. But they can also be what we call indirect. Um, And so the indirect health effects are things like when we see the destruction of of crops or, um, and this results in impacts on um, on economics and and the ability for families to you know spend in ways that they need to and also that has an impact on human health as well but what we're also seeing is is um and and the report uh, identified this as one of the emerging issues are the, are the mental health impacts of climate change and again these can be directly related to an extreme weather event, but also can be sort of longer term and more insidious, I suppose. So if we think about the um, long term drought and drying we had in the early 2000s, there's been a lot of research that looked into the long term health, uh, mental health impacts of that, particularly on on farmers in the Australian context. So, So when we try and understand the health impacts of climate change, it's really important to look at those um, direct impacts that we often hear a lot about in the news, but also these more indirect impacts. And these these are um, the ones that are a little bit harder to start to assess and understand fully to get the bigger picture.
0: It's a really complex web, isn't it? You've got, like you say, the immediate things, but then there's also this sense of compounding of, of issues that perhaps people who already have poor security, food security or water security, it gets worse for them or regions that are sort of dealt a few different climate disasters season on season.
3: That's that's right, and and the IPCC assessment this time um, identified this issue around compounding and cascading risks and impacts for the first time. So if we consider the Australian context again, you know, in 2019 we had one of the driest years on record. Um, this was followed by uh, the, the the terrible um, Black Summer fires, and then in many parts of the of southern Australia we also had floods in in the first half of 2020. So this is what we. Talk talk about in terms of the cascading impacts of um, these sorts of extreme weather events. And over, overlaid on all that as well is the pandemic, and that obviously has impacts on our health systems and our health systems' ability to respond and recover as well. So this is a um, particularly sort of worrying because we do expect... Um, the extre- these extreme weather events to increase with further global warming. So that's right, having a good understanding of how these all of these um, impacts interplay with one another, particularly, as you say, when we talk about um, understanding food and water security and, and the complex um, interplay across all these issues with human health outcomes.
0: We've talked, we've heard about this sense of one health, the, that the environment, environmental health, the health of nature, and the health of societies is kind of interlinked, and we kind of heard about that in the previous interview about Japanese encephalitis virus. What sort of have you looked at whether these things like uh, arthropod-borne diseases are going to be more uh, prevalent during climate
3: change? So the the report really for the first time um, did clearly indicate the that- complex and intricate links between humans, the environment, the natural environment we live in and society. So it's really important that we do have that integrated way of understanding what the challenges are. And as you say, these are going to be many and diverse. So ranging from vector-borne disease changes in their distribution, for example, um, in Australia and elsewhere. Um, but also if we refer to to the extreme weather events again, then we know that these are going to increase in their, in their intensity, in their frequency. So what types of impacts will this have on, on not just our human health, but our societies and also our natural environments? And so this report really drew out that the importance of recognising um, you know, the, the, the well being and the, the health of ecosystems is fundamental to our own human health.
0: What does Australia need to be
3: doing? Well, the report really talks about some key enablers in terms of how we do develop our, you know, solutions and responses to climate change. And some of the key enablers that the report have has identified include um, political commitment. And so for, for many countries around the world, this is a key issue in terms of um, appropriate and urgent ad, uh, action on climate change. So political commitment really was um, again, for the first time, this report has really called out a, a number of new issues. Political commitment was was identified as a key enabling factor in order for us to rapidly um, shift to the transformations that we need in order to be able to respond to the health, not just the health impacts of climate change, but all the other impacts around climate change as well. And the action needs to occur um, this decade. And the report also identifies that there are limits to adaptation. And so without um, rapid reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, we will come across these limits and there'll be nothing else we can do in many cases around adaptation. So the importance, um, the report also talks about the importance of linking adaptation and mitigation together, Mm. yeah.
0: Adaptation and mitigation. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Many thanks. Thanks, Tegan. Catherine Bowen is a Professor of Environment, Climate and Global Health at the Melbourne School of Population Health and Deputy Director of Melbourne Climate Futures at the University of Melbourne and lead author on the IPCC report chapter, Human Health and Wellbeing and the Changing Structure of Communities.
1: Uniquely qualified. Thanks, Tegan. (laughs) Last week in Maryland, David Bennett Sr., the 57-year-old who was transplanted with a genetically modified pig's heart, died. As I said earlier, for me, it brought back memories of baby Faye in the mid-1980s. She was a newborn in California with a potentially catastrophic heart abnormality called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And she was given a baboon heart transplant. Baby Faye survived 21 days after the operation and the surgeon, Dr Leonard Bailey, of Loma Linda Medical Centre was kept away from the media storm which followed. I was the first person, actually, to get an interview with Dr Bailey and I thought I'd rerun that interview from 1985, the first year of the health report. Dr Bailey made an explosive admission during the interview which got worldwide coverage after I ran it. Here's part of that interview.
4: As you know, the original heart transplanted man was a cross-species transplant. It was done at the University of Mississippi by Jim Hardy in 1963, I think. And then with a brain death code that came into existence in this country, we were able to get cadaveric organs from humans. And the cross-species notion got set aside, except for research. What species
5: was used in that first... Uh... That was a chimpanzee. If you look at the results that were got in Mississippi, and then later in those early days of heart transplantation, were they much different? Well, I think they were considerably different. One is the techniques of just doing heart transplantation were
4: new in those days. And the key thing about the Mississippi experience is that that heart didn't reject at all. The patient died, but not because the heart rejected. So in that sense, it showed some promise, but got a lot of criticism. And so the the bulk of the research in cross-species transplantation has been kept in the laboratory setting since then.
5: What is the evidence there for the newborn baby being more tolerant immunologically? Well, just in general, the, the baby's immune
4: system is all geared up for tolerance because it's just come out of a hostile environment of the uterus and it's trying not to reject the uterus and the mom and everything else and vice versa.
5: Is the concept something like you've got to get in before the gates close and once the gates close, you're okay? The question is when the gates close, and clearly in humans, the gates close in utero. Presumably then in the newborn period, it's too late only in a speculative sense. The reason for wanting to look across species in the newborn period is the lack of donors. Is
4: that a real problem? It is indeed. Pediatric neurologists have a very difficult time knowing for certain that a newborn is brain dead. The second is, if a baby is clearly brain dead, they're frequently they're a baby that's had cardiopulmonary resuscitation already and is not a suitable candidate for an
5: organ transfer. Why did you choose baboons? That's a good question.
4: There are perhaps other subhuman primates that would be genetically or immunologically closer than a baboon. And artificial insemination in chimpanzees has been generally unproductive, whereas baboons readily procreate, and so that there's a vast number of
5: infant baboons that we can draw from. If we leave medicine and go to evolution now, what's the extent of the genetic differences between baboons and humans? You're talking to a fundamentalist, in a sense, and my uh, concepts of evolution
4: deal more with a microevolution or variation within species, and I don't have a keen uh, understanding of the differences.
5: When you say fundamentalist, you mean
4: what? Oh, uh, perhaps all of us having been created more or less at the same time, including the subhuman primates. but I think there have been variations within species and so forth since then. I think that's consistent with my belief in in fundamental creationism, that sort of thing. The scientists that are keen uh, on the evolutionary concept that we actually develop serially from subhuman primates to humans, Mm -hmm. with mitochondrial DNA dating and that sort of thing, the differences have to do with millions of years. That boggles my mind somehow. I don't understand it well.
5: And I'm not sure that it means a great deal in terms of tissue homology. In a sense, you're saying, well, look, here we have a heart that's physically very similar to a human heart. It's a little bit different, but perhaps not too much different from another human being, so we'll put it in.
4: Anatomically,
5: it's identical. We have a panel of infant baboons. In fact, our
4: panel is 12 such infant baboons that are all pre-screened already. And so we can then type a recipient and then go select out of that 12 those that most closely
5: match in terms of HLA typing or tissue typing. I know you're not allowed to talk too much about, because you're not yet published your data about the experience with baby Faye, but can you say why baby Faye died? I mean, was it a rejection problem? Can you say it in broad terms like that? I think it's reasonable to say, and it's
4: already known, that she didn't die of, of an ordinary classical rejection. And
5: we're still investigating the interesting phenomenon around her death. I wish I could discuss it with you, but I can. And just finally, you've already commented on your deep religious beliefs. Do you believe that there is an ethical issue to be discussed in surgery such as this?
4: I think the key ethical issue that we tried to address was whether or not it was reasonable or ethical to perform this kind of an operation on an individual who is incompetent to give his own consent or her own consent. The only way that becomes ethical is if there's a therapeutic imperative involved. And we felt that we had enough information at the time of the clinical trial to suggest that there was indeed clear therapeutic intent for this child. In that case, then it's entirely up to her parents to make the decision.
1: And Leonard Bailey never did another cross-species transplant, although he had many baboons on the side, but he did do many human ones. And interestingly, a survey of Australian medical students at that time showed that about 20 or 30% of them did not believe in evolution either. So creationism was widespread amongst uh, medical students and I think studies
0: since then have found that that number's come down a lot. Gosh, Mm -hmm. that's... Fascinating, Norman, uh, your young, svelte voice, notwithstanding. <laughs> with an
1: Aberdonian accent, which I'd forgotten I had.
0: But just how, in some ways, how far we've come and in other ways, how little has changed in that time.
1: That's right. Well, the pig one, the, pig, the, the, pig, the genetically modified pigs got got a way to go there. I think it's quite promising. But you're going well, to continue with heart disease.
0: Yeah, and in the time since you you did that interview in the 80s, the number of people dying of heart attacks has dr- declined dramatically, which sounds like good news, but I wouldn't be talking about it here if that was the full story, would I? Uh, hidden within that overall trend are groups of people where that decline has stalled or may even be reversing. So, what's slowing or reversing that decline? What factors are at play here? To try and find out, a group of researchers have pulled together medical records of about 80 million people across four countries, including Australia. And one of those researchers is Lee Nedkoff from the University of Western Australia. Welcome, Lee. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for having me on today. So, what were you looking for in this study? Well, what we were looking for is,
6: as you mentioned, heart um, attack mortality rates have been declining for, for many years and we were trying to understand the reasons behind that because that helps us to know, you know, how we can prevent heart attacks happening further uh, into the future.
0: So you're looking at two different things when you're looking at people dying from heart attacks. One is people getting having a heart attack, at the sort of the rate of heart attack itself, and then the number of people within that who die from it where's the gains happening?
6: Right, well, what we found as an overall picture across the four countries that we looked at was that generally the majority of gain was actually coming from preventing the heart attacks happening in the first place. So that means reducing the event rate of heart attacks, but having said that, we did see some differences in some areas. so as an example, um, men in New South Wales, we actually saw a slightly reversed picture where actually um, improving treatment after having a heart attack was having a greater effect than preventing the heart attack in the first place. So there were differences sort of between countries
0: and then further by by age and sex. Well, let's focus on Australia because we're self-interested and this is an Australian <laughs> program. What sort of differences were you seeing across groups here?
6: Yeah, so in particular, what one issue we found was that in what we call young adults, and that's young in terms of having heart disease. So for our, our age group, that was people aged under 55. And what we found in particular, and this was particularly seen in women under 55, that was that... Um, those improvements in treatment after having a heart attack were very strong drivers of reducing the, the mortality rate from heart attack overall. And in, in women in New South Wales in particular, it was completely driven by those improvements in treatment. What that means then is that we're not doing perhaps as good a job as we could be doing at preventing the heart attacks happening in the first place, which is obviously a really important um, point.
0: Mm, and what about older groups?
6: Yeah, and we actually saw a sort of an opposite pattern in older groups. There was a tendency towards um, preventing the heart attacks happening in the first place being the driver of of reductions in heart attack um, mortality um, as opposed to sort of improvements in treatment um, after
0: having the heart attack. So this is very big health data that you've pulled from countries at, at that sort of country level. What are the implications for health systems? If you're saying that, say, younger or people under the age of 55 are having heart attacks, they're surviving them, but they're having them more than they should be. What should health systems be doing to reverse this trend?
6: Well, I think, um, as you've importantly pointed out, is, you know, we do see these patterns differently um, depending on which area we're in. But it was fairly common for that younger age group um, that this pattern was happening where prevention perhaps is not as good as it could be. So I think, um, and, and perhaps highlighted by, by recent events, a really important thing in terms of health systems is mm. people actually getting their cardiovascular risk assessed. And that generally means sort of going to your general practitioner, having a cardiovascular risk um, check, there's a heart health check, which which Everyone aged over 45 um, can access through Medicare and that looks at all your cardiovascular risk factors um, in combination and determines what your risk levels are and therefore whether you should be having treatment or making lifestyle changes or having further diagnostic tests to really um, ensure
0: that you are as low risk as possible. So that's individuals, that's things that we can do to empower ourselves, that's really important. But are there more? is there more that... Australia's health system or uh, government should be doing to, at at a population level, to try to change this uh, trend towards younger people having heart attacks?
6: Yeah, I mean, certainly our, our public health and, and public awareness campaigns are really important and they're things that, you know, pe- um, organisations like the Heart Foundation have been running successfully for many years. I think perhaps we need to ramp that up in terms of um, the message towards these this younger adult group. Um, certainly, you know, we still need to think about um, how important treatment is after people do have a heart attack um, because that affects um, more so older people and certainly, you know, our, our health system has a big part of that in terms of people getting to hospital as quickly as possible um, when they do have a heart attack and and then being able to receive, you know, the the optimal medical treatment that they can once they're in hospital.
0: So your study looked at Australia, but also New Zealand, Canada and England. Are there lessons that we can learn from those other countries that uh, that may be doing things better?
6: Um, Yeah, well, I mean, as an example in England, um, you know, they had a sort of higher levels of case fatality. So that's, you know, people, people dying. Actually
0: dying, yeah.
6: Yeah, yeah, sort of fairly soon after having a heart attack at the beginning of our study. And they implemented very aggressive um, sort of policies and, and um, procedures in hospitals about to bring that level down. And what we saw in our study was that that um, level of fatality after a heart attack um, reduced really substantially. Something um, and we it can just consider
0: shows... doing here. Lee, thanks so yeah. much for joining us. Thanks, Tegan. Thank you. Dr. Lee Nedkoff is a Senior Research Fellow in Cardiovascular Disease Epidemiology at the University of Western Australia. And that's it from the Health Report. Norman and I will be back next week.
1: We certainly will.
0: You've been
3: listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.